Okay, so as we continue our study in the, the backgrounds of the Old Testament, and we've seen how uh, the kingdom was divided into two, and you had the northern kingdom the, the, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was uh, taken by which country? Assyria. Assyria, what year? 722. And the southern kingdom was taken by? Babylon. Babylon in the year? 586. Okay, excellent. One thing I'm going to learn in this course. Good. Hey, that's, that's two things right there, man, right? The, the country and the dates. If you learn those, that's good. Um, so as, as uh, Judah is taken into captivity in 586, they were a solitary uh, nation for a while. After the Assyrians had taken the north, it was just a single kingdom. And we looked at them last week. And so this week we want to look at what happens after that. They did not heed the warning of the prophets that God sent, and they did not change their ways. And so God did what he promised he was going to do. He said through the prophet uh, Jeremiah that they would be exiled if they didn't change their ways and if they didn't turn back to trusting in him. And so that is exactly what he did. He is um, a God who keeps his word, and he keeps his covenant faithfulness. And so that's what he did. And so this morning, as, as they're taken into Babylon, we're going to look at some aspects of Babylon. For those three of you that are in my other uh, class, there will be a little overlap this morning because we did a, a bit of information on Babylon with uh, Daniel. So this morning, as we look at the Babylonians, we're going to specifically looking at the time period between 625 and 539 B.C., which is called the Neo-Babylonian uh, time period or era. The Babylonian Empire in itself, as you already kind of know, goes back uh, much, much uh, further than this time period. And so the Babylonians, they were descendants from Shem, but unlike the Hebrews, who were also Semites, they did not migrate from the Mesopotamian basin. Okay, They had a different language from the Persians, which were to the north of them, who also traced their lineage back to Shem. So when I talk about Shem, we're talking about Noah's three sons, right? Um, and so, good morning. The Babylonians um, were the group of people who, at this time period, under specifically Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to be the main guy that we're going to talk about and the main one that you want to know and, and remember, are going to come in and sweep through the whole country. Uh, they're going to do massive building projects, and they are going to um, just wreak havoc as well as uh, provide a lot of prosperity in their own place. And so some of the things we're going to look at this morning are the history of Babylon, uh, the society, how Israel and Babylon uh, interact and the relationship between the two, some pros and cons of their exile, and then at the end, um, a few thoughts about Babylon and us. And so... We look at the uh, ancient Near Eastern history of Babylon and uh, the dominant people in the Mesopotamian area, and it's going to be a pretty lengthy list. Some of these we've touched on, but you are not going to be uh, you know, tested on, on each one of these. You don't have to know all these dates, all, all that. We're just trying to get a little bit of uh, uh, context for what we're talking about today. So you can see on the information up here that it goes back to the 3200 or so B.C. We're going to be looking 
if you look down here at the bottom in the gray, the Neo-Babylonian era of 625. Now, the old Babylonian era is 1830 to 1530. And so the Babylonians are a group of people, been around a long time, have a lot of history and a lot of interaction throughout the, the biblical story uh, as well. But as I've mentioned, the, one, the time period that we're looking at is the Neo or the New Babylonian Empire. Think just like when we looked at Egypt, you've got the old, the middle, and the new uh, kingdoms and dynasties, the time periods. And so you have the same thing um, right here. And so 625 to 539 is the, the time period of the, the Neo-Babylonian Empire that we want to specifically focus on. Who were the rulers during this time period? The, the rulers of this time period are Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar II, his son, um, Ebal Merodach, Nerglissar, Labosar Arkad, uh, Nabonidus, or something close to that, and Belshazzar. Now, some of these you may never have heard of, and others you have. Which ones do you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. So, you're familiar with about half of them, or a little more than half, probably, then. So, that's good. All right? The other ones, it's not going to be a big deal, again. All right? We're going to fo focus primarily on Nebuchadnezzar as it relates to the taking of Judah. Okay? Now, Belshazzar shows up in what book? Three. Yes, okay. So both of these do, actually, as does Nebuchadnezzar. And so um, if you want one particular book that kind of deals with, with these histories, Daniel would be a good book to look at for that as well. Now, to get the, the context of how we end up in Babylon... Just a little bit review and putting some pieces together on Jerusalem and Judah and the fall. So you can see up here on the screen some of the prophets. And those of you in the OT survey class will be familiar with this. But you got Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, who, as you can see, overlap pretty significantly in their time periods and in their, their ministries which is a pretty interesting thing um, because God keeps his word in front of his people. If we put our a little map up here on the, the board, what's that area? Okay, Mesopotamia. And so what country is over there that we're talking about? Right, Babylon's over there, okay. So, and what country is over here uh, all the way to the left or the west? Egypt is, right? So we got Egypt over here. Okay, we're going to have, um, this is Meso, and, and it's going to be Babylon that we're looking at specifically today. And then in the middle, of course, we've got Israel, Palestinian area, the Levant, whatever word you want to use to determine uh, that area. So in the seesaw effect of powers that goes on throughout this area, because remember, this is the land bridge, so everybody wants it. So you got Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Now, the interesting thing to me is that God keeps a witness of his word. I think you'll see this throughout scripture. And so while Jeremiah is 
prophesying down here in the south, warning the people to turn back to God, and they reject him. They don't listen to him. And so what happens? Well, you end up with uh, three deportations into Babylon, uh, 605, 597, and 587, okay? So in 605, Daniel and some people go. 597, Ezekiel and some more people go. And then 586, uh, the temple and Jerusalem are, are burned, and some more people go. All right? So... When Jeremiah had prophesied and it begins to come true and Jerusalem is, is taken, the people then decided against, against Jeremiah's wishes and, and prophecies that they should flee to Egypt. So actually they took Jeremiah with them to Egypt. And so the interesting thing that you can now see up here on the whiteboard is that God now has prophets. Egypt and Babylon, and then there's uh, still a small group of people, m more of them probably poor than not, in the mainland Israel that are still there. Yeah? What year did Jeremiah go to Egypt? Um, I don't remember the exact year, but that would have been after the 586. So it was shortly after that. I think it was within about five years, if I'm not mistaken. And so... <coughs> You also have in that time period some other of the minor prophets that are, are prophesying here. And then Lamentations was written by Jeremiah as he laments, he mourns the destruction and the fall of Jerusalem in between this time period here. So after 586 as well. So that's our context for studying the Babylonians. With that is the last five sons or kings that ruled in Judah. And so you have three major ones that ruled, okay? Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And then two minor ones here in the middle, three months each is all they, they reigned. Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin. Don't confuse Kim and Chin or Kim and Kin if you do the CH with a K sound, okay? So those are the last five, all right? And they were just, they're puppet kings. They're, they're put in place as um, the, the reigning empires need someone to rule the area. Remember, as, as these world empires sweep in, okay, they have to have some way to maintain order and some stability and keep control of the area. And so you have to have rulers and governors and whatnot over all these different areas that you conquer. So what they often did is, is they get someone who will pledge to be loyal to them uh, from the province, all right? And if they don't remain loyal, well, then they remove them, either kill them or remove them, and put somebody else in their place. So that's what happens with these puppet kings. And you read through the, the story of kings, and you'll see that um, they will revolt sometimes and and Zedekiah does, which is why in 586 Babylon comes in, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and this is the third time at least he's been there. And now he's just like, okay, it's three strikes and you're out. You know, we're, we're done with this. We're burning you down. We're taking it. It's, we're no more playing with you. And so 
that's what happens um, with them. And so uh, with that aspect, they end up in exile. And uh, Jeremiah had prophesied that they would be in exile for, anybody remember how long? 70 years. Right, 70 years. Okay, so the 70 years, we looked at this in Daniel, for those of you in, in that course, but the 70 years is a little difficult sometimes to determine when and where to start and to end it. But you can look at it, and some people do, as two 70-year exiles, whereas the first one is the people being exiled, and the second one is uh, the temple being exiled. You also have an aspect of how the northern kingdom was exiled out, uh, but this is specifically here talking about the, um, the southern kingdom. And so if you look at the top arrow with the people, you see that 605 is the area. Now, some stuff will go to 609 because um, he did come in there at, in 609 and begin uh, removing some people <coughs> also. But 605 corresponds with what I have here on the whiteboard with Daniel. Okay, These are the three major deportations. There were actually more than that. And I think I have that on a chart a little bit later. major ones. And so the exile, 70 years worth, and then 586 when the temple is, is removed, um, there's also a 70 year until the rebuilding of that as well. And so that's the 70 years that they're in exile. And the five kings of that time period that we just looked at previously in the other chart are put in an order this way. Of course, they're all bad. Okay, Josiah was a good king. He reigned for 31 years. Okay, and then Jehoahaz, right, who is, is renamed. He has the three months. And then to follow this, number three was Jehoiakim, all right, four, Jehoiachin, and then uh, five was Zedekiah. And you can see in parentheses there are other names that they were given. Why are they given new names? Well, similar to why Daniel is given new names. You come in under uh, another empire, and they want to rebrand him. They want to give him a new identity. They want him to realize who's their king and who's their boss and who's their god. Okay? So we talked about uh, last week in Daniel, in, in that class, how you know, we need to be people of conviction that even if you're branded some way, that doesn't have to change who, who you are inside. You know, Daniel was, was brought to another land, and he was forced into a certain mold um, externally, but internally, he remained faithful to God. And that is the same challenge that we have, that we have to be people of conviction, that we live in a, a pagan world, and um, you're always going to live, no matter what level of Christianity is, is prevalent there, uh, the kingdoms of this world are not the kingdom of God. And so they're always going to be corrupt. And so we have to be people that know the word of God and that have the conviction and internal uh, wherewithal to live that out. So then they are, of course, exiled into um, Babylon. And so with that, what I want to look at is Babylon a little bit. And this is where there will be some overlap and review for those of you who were 
in my other class. So Babylon is a, is a, a great world empire. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is known for his magnificent buildings. Uh, Babylon was a place of uh, human gloriousness, if you will. Uh, the book of Daniel even attests to this. Nebuchadnezzar had credited himself, basically, with building up this, this great thing. And when he, in his pride and hubris, uh, took that credit, that's when God struck him down in humility because he didn't acknowledge the fact that God had brought all that into his life. Which is another point that we need to remember. Whatever you and I have, it's because God's brought it into our life. And so uh, we need to maintain humility and uh, give appreciation and thanks to him for that exact thing. So um, we already know pretty much where Babylon was. And so I don't think we need to spend uh, too much time on that. Because we've looked at it in the beginning of the course and quite repeatedly probably... Uh, since then. But Babylon means um, the gate of God. It's from Babylu, B-A-B-I-L-U, Babylu, the gate of God. Um, it's an ancient city in the plain of Shinar and the Euphrates River, about 50 miles south of modern Baghdad. <coughs> this is a reconstruction of it up on the screen. Uh, it was founded by Nimrod, who, according to Genesis 10, who developed the world's first organized system of idolatry, condemned in Genesis 11, trying to build a name for themselves, building towers, ziggurats, etc., and violating God's command to scatter, they wanted to stay. So, um, in 539 B.C., Cyrus, who we'll probably talk about the Persians next week, led the Persian army into victory over Babylon uh, by diverting the river that runs right so, of the 70 years of the existence of, of this magnificent aspect of, uh, of, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar ruled 45 of those years. Um, he was the commander of Nabopolassar's army, and he was pretty unstoppable. So, if you remember the, the previous chart that listed the rulers, Nabopolassar was, was up there at the top. Uh, so, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, his son. So, he invaded... Um, Tyre, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Jerusalem. So if you remember where Tyre is, you're, you're over here on the, uh, the coast of the Mediterranean. So he, he's come all the way from the Mesopotamian area, all the way over west, all right, encroaching onto um, Egyptian territory. Inscriptions and documents and letters written during the 43 years of his reign give an idea of the power and the wealth of Babylon. Um, the city itself was in the form of a square, uh, 14 miles on each side. Let's see, I think my next uh, slide is another one. Um, let's see, where was I? So 14 miles each side. Uh, the brick walls were 56 miles long, 300 feet high, 25 feet thick, with another wall 75 feet behind the first wall, and the wall extended 35 feet below the ground. These, these were massive walls. This, this was a, a fortress. <coughs> you can see some of that in this reconstruction here with these walls. It was 250 towers that were 450 feet high. 
There was a wide moat that encircled the city. You can see that there. There's boats in it, etc. The Euphrates River flows right through the middle of the city. Ferry boats and a half-mile-long bridge with a drawbridge and close at night. And then the hanging gardens, which we'll, we'll talk about in, in a moment. There was uh, eight massive gates that led to the inner city and 100 brass gates. The streets were paved with stone slabs that were three foot square. And the great tower, the ziggurat, and 53 temples, including the great temple of Marduk, which we'll look at in a minute. 180 altars to Ishtar. Golden images of Baal and the golden table, both weighing over 50,000 pounds of solid gold. Golden lion statues that were 18 feet high. And then his palace is considered to be the most magnificent building ever erected on earth. Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. Uh, magnificent place. So the, the Ishtar Gate. Was what you would see as you entered the city. Okay, You would come along this this. This roadway here to the gates of the city, here is a, a partial reconstruction. Um, archaeologists have found parts of this Ishtar gate. So it was constructed by Nebuchadnezzar around 575 B.C. It was the eighth gate of the city of Babylon. It was the main entrance into the city. So the Ishtar gate was part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan to beautify his empire's capital. And during the first half of the 6th century B.C., he restored the temple of Marduk and built the renowned wonder, the Hanging Gardens that we'll look at in a moment. Uh, the magnificence of the Ishtar Gate was so well known that it made the initial list of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but was later replaced by Alexander's uh, lighthouse, or the lighthouse of Alexandria. Um, so the Ishtar Gate, it's named so because it was dedicated to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, although Nebuchadnezzar pays homage to other Babylonian deities through various animal representations as well. So the animals represented on the gate are young bulls, and um, dragons and lions. You can see them right there, but you can also uh, see them here. Uh, you can see the lions. Okay, you can see uh, the bull here. I don't think I have a, a picture of the other one. But there's a picture that's actually, actually in a, a museum. Those are actually uh, parts of the gate that have been taken down and um, reconstructed to some degree and are in a museum that you could actually uh, go see. So the front of the gate is adorned with glazed brick with um, alternating images of dragons and bulls. Uh, the glazed uh, bricks, as I mentioned, across the, the whole uh, front of the gate. The beasts are yellow and brown tiles, uh, while the bricks surrounding them are blue. The blue enamel ties are thought to be of lapis lazuli, um, uh, a special blue dye, but there's some debate about that. The gates were more than 38 feet high with uh, very big uh, antechambers on the, on the southern side, so on the inside. Through the gates is the processional way, which was a brick-paved corridor over half a mile long with walls over 50 feet tall, and the walls were adorned with over 120 sculptured lion flowers and enameled yellow tiles. The processional way was used for the New Year's celebration, and that led all the way up to um, the temple of Marduk. Okay, so 
You have to imagine, okay, when the captives were taken, when Daniel was taken, when Ezekiel was taken, they're marched, you know, from Jerusalem all the way over to Babylon, and then they go up this, this roadway that goes to the gates. I mean, they're not even inside yet, and they see these gates. I mean, the awe and the magnificence of the structure has got to be overwhelming. So the, um, the gates, they lead to this, um, this paved way that is going to lead to the temple. On the Ishtar Gate is a dedication plaque written from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view that explains the gate's purpose and describes it in some detail. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the faithful prince appointed by the will of Marduk, the highest of princely princes, beloved of Nabu, of prudent counsel, who has learned to embrace wisdom, who fathoms their divine being and reveres their majesty, the untiring governor who always takes to heart the care of the cult of Ishtagilia and Ezida and is constantly concerned with the well-being of Babylon and Borsippa, the wise, the humble, the caretaker of um, of these, the firstborn son of Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon. Both gate entrances um, following the filling of the street from Babylon have become increasingly lower. Therefore, I pulled down these gates and laid their foundations with a water table with asphalt and brick and had them made of bricks and blue stones on which wonderful bulls and dragons are depicted. He then says, I covered the roofs by laying majestic cedar lengthwise over them, and I hung doors of cedar with bronze at all the gate openings. And I placed wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateway and adorned them with luxurious splendor so that people might gaze on them in wonder. And I let the temple of Isis Korsikor, the highest festival house of Marduk, the lord of the gods, a place of joy and celebration for the major and the minor gods, uh, be built firm like a mountain in the precincts of Babylon of asphalt and fire bricks. So, I mean, it's a very long inscription explaining, you know, why he built this Ishtar gate. So this was excavated in 1902 to 1914, um, and that's where uh, they were able, I'm going to go back to it, parts of the, that gate. And uh, 45 feet of the original foundation of the gate were discovered. The material excavated by Robert Goldway was used in reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate in a processional way. And in 1930, the reconstruction was finished at the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, Germany. Due to size restrictions at the Pergamum Museum, the Ishtar Gate is neither complete nor the original size. Uh, the gate was originally a double gate, but the Pergamum Museum only utilizes the smaller frontal part. The second gate they have in Philly. Um, originally, the gate had a door and a roof made of cedar and bronze, like we read in the inscription, uh, which was not built for the reconstruction. A smaller reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate was built in Iraq under Saddam Hussein as the entrance to a museum. However, this reconstruction was never finished due to the war. So there's several museums in the world that have received portions of the Ishtar Gate, and it is on display. And, you know, this is one of them. So. Uh, this magnificence that you, that you see entering into the, the city itself is pretty awe-inspiring. It would then lead to the, the temple. Um, of Marduk. He rebuilt every temple in Babylon, eight within the city itself, and the greatest of them being... Um, the temple to Marduk, which we'll look at that one in, in just a second. You also have the hanging gardens, okay?
built one of the seven wonders of the world, um, according to the Greeks. 400 square feet raised terraces to the height of the city walls, and from a distance it appeared to be a forest covered by mountains in the midst of the Mesopotamian Valley. The legend is that um, he made this for his wife because um, this was the, the type of environment she was used to, and he brought her to this more barren, desolate uh, place. And so that was the, the wife, the daughter of the Medes that he had uh, married. Um, he had hydraulic pumps that were pumping the water up from the river so that it could feed into the, um, the gardens. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, ingenuity going on here and architectural um, things. So Herodotus <coughs> wrote about it, historian. In addition to its size, he said, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. Herodotus, um, as I mentioned about the, the height of the walls, Herodotus claimed that the outer walls were 56 miles in length, 80 feet thick, and 320 feet high, wide enough, he said, to allow two four-horse chariots to pass each other. So you basically have, you know, Kirkman Road on top of these walls. Um, the city also had inner walls, he said, which were not so thick as the first, but hardly less strong. Inside these double walls were fortresses and temples containing immense statues of solid gold. And rising above the city was the famous Tower of Babel, a temple to Marduk that seemed to reach to the heavens, which is the back in Genesis chapter 11 when they tried to build the tower to the heavens. So, <coughs> this aspect. The, the next slide is, is also another uh, depiction of the Hidden Gardens. And, um, the illustration here again is the idea of the legend that he had built this um, for his wife. This is uh, a picture of the ruins of the Hanging Gardens. Yep. These were uh, found, I believe, by the German archaeologist Robert Goldway in 1899. Uh, for centuries, the ancient city of Babel had been nothing but a mound of uh, muddy debris, never explored by scientists. And while excavating the southern citadel, he discovered a basement with 14 large rooms with stone art ceilings. Ancient records indicated that only two locations in the city had made use of stone, the north wall of the northern citadel and the hanging gardens. The north wall of the northern citadel had already been found and had indeed contained stone. So this made him think that he found the, the cellar of the gardens. So he continued exploring the area and discovered many of the features recorded um, in historical records. He unearthed a room with three large, strange holes in the floor and concluded that this had been the location of the chain pump that raised the waters to the garden's roof. Um, some modern archaeologists have called his discovery into, into question, arguing that the location was too far from the river to have been uh, irrigated with the amount of water that would have been required. So um, there is some you know, debate about that, but that is uh, some of the ruins that is thought to be related to it. So this again is a another reconstruction 
of the Temple of Marduk in Babylon, and you can see that it's uh, fairly significant in size as well. The religious nature of the Babylonians was uh, quite, uh, we, we would probably say, uh, polytheistic, but definitely lots of gods. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, uh, they're pretty much everywhere. And so Babylonians had many, many gods. Marduk, <coughs> Bel, or, or Baal, those are different names depending on the, the time period, the culture, etc. As these empires, you think about it, as these world empires influence so many different cultures and other nations. They bring with them their religious ideas of their culture. And so what often happens is this idea of syncretism, that the, the mixing of ideas and cultures. And so this is why, one of the reasons, it was so difficult for the Jews to uh, resist all of these different uh, worldviews, philosophies, and worship of these idols and gods because they're constantly being exposed to them. And so when they're in a crisis event and they feel like Yahweh's not answering, which scripturally is pretty much always because of their sin and rebellion, um, then they would, they would turn to these. Or in Solomon's case, as he was forewarned, um, his multiple wives from pagan cultures would turn his heart uh, to these things also. And so if you just think about the, the constant mixing of cultures going on here, you can begin to understand how even a place like uh, Babylon would have so many varied gods. Remember also the idea that, remember the story of uh, the Philistines, that they get the ark and they put it in Dagon's temple. One of the practices there is that as you capture a place, you take their gods and you put it in your temple. So that you, you've got hundreds of gods, you know, from all these places that you've captured. So anyways, <clears throat> Marduk, the son of Eve of wisdom, the chief of the Babylonian gods, the rising sun, um, temples and huge ziggurats, um, as we'll, we'll talk about them in just a moment. Wife was uh, Sar Sarpanitu, sacred number of ten in the planet of Jupiter were related um, to this. Um, statues of pure gold, as we mentioned, throughout Babylon. And so Marduk is, is the, the top deity here in Babylon. time of Nebuchadnezzar II, it's a huge sanctuary complex that was going on. And this little uh, map of the city here shows some of the different uh, temples that were all over. So you can see here, temple, 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 temple. And so there, were, there was temples all over the place in um, Babylon. They were not just in, in one place, but they were all over the place. Marduk's temple in particular was, of course, the focal point of all this. And the processional way, as we mentioned, led directly to the temple. Um, this was about uh, 1,200 feet each side and uh, entered, uh, had 12 different gates on it. And then in the middle was the, the sanctuary, the tower that was eight stories high. 
And so this was the, the center of the city. Unlike our modern culture, everything was related to their religion and their belief system. You know, in our secular humanistic society, you know, we've tried to separate all that out. Um, the gods were everywhere. Every street bore the name of, of one of the gods. And so all over, you would see that the, the gods are mentioned, are as part of their culture, and the streets were, were named that. You can see some of them here, okay? Ishtar, Enlil, Isin, Anu, Adad. And so weather gods, all, all, all sorts of gods, just this pantheon of gods. That, um, every street is bearing the name pretty much. <coughs> Back to this picture, just um, blown up a little bit larger so that you can uh, just kind of see again where those temples are. <coughs> As you come in the city, okay, so you come in and you have the processional way is this main road right here coming in. All right, that would come to these gates. So you can see um, gates, gates gates that are listed all over the place. So what do we know about some of the religious aspects here? Okay. Um, first off, there's 53 temples of the chief gods. There's 55 chapels of Marduk. 300 chapels for earthly deities, 600 chapels for heavenly deities, 180 altars for the goddess Ishtar, 180 for the gods Nergal and Adad, and 12 other altars for various gods. I mean, you're talking religion everywhere. You're talking worship everywhere. Paganism everywhere. So, Isaiah says, Babylon, the jewel of the kingdom, the glory of the pride of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. The nomad will not pitch a tent there, and shepherds will not let their flocks rest there. And so <coughs> the, um, the prophets parse prophecies concerning uh, Babylon for their religious and, and other uh, aspects that are contrary to God. Daily presentation of offerings were part of the rituals. Cleaning the garments of the divine statues. Um, this still goes on. I was in a. Um, what, what temple was this? Um, I was in a temple in Clarkston, Georgia. Uh, I was working at a, a Christian school at the time. And uh, this is in U.S. Actually, you don't even have to go very far. You can go five or ten minutes from here, and you can see one of these. It's at the corner of um, Pine Hills and. go by it all the time, and my son always comments on it. Um, so, it's right there, and uh, they just rebuilt the, mm -hmm. the place, and it's got their, their mm -hmm. god statues in the windows. Mm -hmm. Alright, and they knew exactly what this is. Cleaning the garments of the divine statues. So, when we were there, they, they talked to us about what goes on in this temple. And we saw some people. This old woman brought a, a, ba a grocery bag with some, some fruit she'd gotten at the market. For the gods. They have priests that are dedicated to the temple um, who have taken vows of celibacy, and their job is taking care of the temple and taking care of these gods. Um, these quote gods uh, are um, man made statues, 
They shower them. They change their clothes. They prepare food for them. And set it before them. So what happens when the food doesn't move without boiling? What happens if like you don't have enough [laughs] [laughs] They, they has, okay, I I just joked about that but actually they've said that that happens sometimes. So anyways. Um. They're pretty good at it. Yeah, they're pretty good at it. Um. [laughs] Okay, it's dinner time. So, the point is that these ancient ancient practices are so ancient. They're right here. The they're in our own city. The you don't have to travel somewhere. You can go to Pine Hills and uh Silver Star Road and it's right there. Oh right to the where the AT and T um gaming area is. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yep. Yes. That's one of those, okay, and that's not the only one in town. And so, this is what you're talking about, so what else would they do, the purification of the temples. And special festivals. Especially the the New Year festival. All right. Each city had its own god and temple. And they had uh their own land, slaves, animals, and precious stones. The priests would um would use nature. They would foretell stuff by nature. Also, you're probably familiar with this aspect, they would use different parts of the the animal, the livers and stuff, and they would read them. Kind of like palm reading, but liver reading, okay? Um and selling of charms and magical formulas. The stuff that goes on. Hey you can drive down Pine Hill in uh before you get to the temple that we were just talking about uh you will see off in the little uh strip plaza, right next to it, day care, um is a uh palm reading, fortune telling, whatever type of things, little spiritual uh hot spots. Um there there's several of those around town, you go down on fifty down towards uh Fashion Square mall area. Uh several there. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh okay. Cool. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Okay, um I think we're good to move on. To the next one? Yeah. All right, let's keep eating this blueberry, yeah. I think we need to calm down a little bit and like eat our Belize. Uh I visited several 
that were related back to uh, the Mayan culture, uh, you know, they looked about the same. You know, they're these ziggurat step stone structures, you know, and I've got all sorts of pictures of them, and, you know, we went up and, and uh, explored the areas, and, you know, they would do sacrifices up at the top of these things. And the same thing that's going on uh, here with uh, Babylon. So, of course, all of that reminds us and brings us back to uh, Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, which, you know, this is the, the origin of Babylon. So, uh, did Nimrod ever think that what he started would end up in the, uh, the demise, so to speak, of the city of Jerusalem and God's people and all that? Um, I doubt it, of course. But So, these are the aspects of the religion. And then there's uh, a reconstruction here that you can see as you go up. You know, the higher you get and uh, the place at the top for offering the temples. And this is the passage from Isaiah that, you know, I would quoted just a moment ago. But that's not all Babylon was known for. Okay, religion is one thing. It was a huge thing, but it's not all that they were known for. Uh, Babylon was known for other things, including uh, the literature, um, the impact of Sumeria. We talked about Sumeria back in the beginning of the semester in this course and how many things that originate uh, from this time period. Uh, they were immersed in Sumerian culture since 3000 BC. So remember, that's long before Nebuchadnezzar, okay, because Babylon's been around a long time, Genesis 11. Um, they adopted the Sumerian system of formal education. Nabu, the god of the scribal arts, gave Babylon uh, cuneiform, they, they credit him with. Cuneiform, if uh, you don't quite recall, it's uh, they use little stylus, and uh, they make these wedge-shaped designs in the, in the clay, and then it hardens. Uh, transformed later to uh, simplified si symbols on clay tablets, and then eventually, who, who are the people responsible for spreading the alphabet? The Phoenicians, right, okay? So we got away eventually from uh, this cuneiform. <coughs> what does it uh, look like uh, up close? Looks kind of like this. Um, early cuneiform of the sign of a star looks like this. You can see um, they always have one because of the, the wedge shape of the stylus. So you got the one end that's uh, thicker. Looks like an arrow or a, or a plunger or something. Um, so you can see that these kind of look like what uh, image they're trying to depict. Okay, so the pictograph signs, okay, from about the 3000s, <laughs> and then you have cuneiform around 2000s, the later cuneiform, and then eventually it's going to uh, go to alphabet. And so you can kind of see the, the progression or the evolution of the language of, of writing here. <coughs> so this is some of their other influence. Sumerian writings were incorporated, translation to um, Akkadian, which became the, the common language, the lingua franca. The schools of scribes copied compositions and created catalogs, and the Sumero-Babylonians uh, had dictionaries that were um, popularized, the myths and the epics, the hymns, so there's, there's a lot of writing going on. After the fall of Babylon of 539 to the Persian, Aramaic and Greek became the common language. So it was Akkadian, up until that time period, and then it was Aramaic and then uh, Greek. Poetry, parallel.
Judaism. Rendered ideas two different ways, uh, side by side, couplets and singlets and triplets, uh, not rhyme or meter. And then epics that you've already been exposed to, Enuma Elish and Gilgamesh epic uh, that we've already seen. Music, you know, storytelling, chanting of verses, religious ceremonies and entertainment. Of course, all of this, or a large majority of this, would have been really connected to uh, their beliefs and their gods and their religious aspects. All very intertwined. Um, they used the reed and the flute, the lyre, drum, trumpets, harp. So all sorts of instruments are involved as well. Uh, the Gilgamesh epic, you know, the Babylonian version of the flood, just as a review for you, because we've already studied this in some detail, but the, the polytheism versus monotheism was evident in these, which is no surprise when you see all of the gods. I mean, the streets are named for all the gods, the, the temples that are all over the place. <coughs> you remember that the gods were quarreling and disagreeing in the Babylonian account? Um, and then you just have some of the other aspects there. So w we studied that back in the, the beginning. We won't spend more time on that. The wisdom literature, many writings, problems of evil and suffering were uh, explored through their writings. Uh, who was the other big... Uh, Egypt, we, we didn't talk about that here probably. You know that from uh, our other class. So if you couldn't think of it and you're like, when did he ever say that? Well, I probably didn't in here, okay? That was our other class. So I'm just connecting the two for you. All right? So uh, prophecy, Babylonian prophecy, uh, the forerunner of many occult religions and mystical books, and it described past events in prophetic terms to validate their foretelling. <coughs> of other events. All right. Babylon is also known for their uh, law. So the religious influence continues with uh, Shamash, the sun god, who's also the god of law and justice. And Hammurabi, okay, what's the other way that you see people saying that word? Hammurabi. Yes, okay, with a B, Hammurabi, okay? Punishments for crimes, okay, this is prior to uh, the Ten Commandments, so there's already law codes in existence. And so the, the significance of law and order, the Code of um, Hammurabi, the business practices for civil law, courts that had administered laws. So you think about the courts and, and whatnot that we have, you have civil law, you have uh, criminal law, you have all these litigation stuff. Well, it's, it's really not new. They've always had, uh, well, let me rephrase it, put it this way. Anytime you have a large group of people, they're entering into transactions with each other, right? And if people enter into transactions, we're all sinful people, right? So sinful people entering into transactions are, are going to frequently have problems in their transactions, right? <laughs> so you need someone to settle your dispute. So law courts. There are four judges in each court, and appeals can be made to the king. Now, in our country, you don't make an appeal to the king or the president. You go to the appeals court, right? So. Capital punishment, flogging, uh, reduction to slavery, and banishment are all some of the different uh, types of sentences. America wasn't much different, right? 
you think about our history, oh, weren't these some of the very same things that were used um, in American history? So <coughs> in one sense, we, we think we've come a long way, but in another sense, when you look at stuff, there's really not much difference in all the, the time periods that we're talking about, the thousands of years. Continuing with the law codes, um, many documents that are called law codes from 2350 to 1750 BC, almost all are in verbal agreement showing no legal codes but royal decrees. So you got the king in, involved with these actions. Um, his divine mission was to administer justly. You can see a definite parallel between that and the scripture. If you look at the scriptures, God's king is supposed to make sure that justice is properly administered, that right things are done rightly. The Code of Hammurabi established legal practice in Babylon's institutions and customs. Um, retaliation, the Lex Talionis. Um, we've talked, uh, maybe in this class, I don't really remember, but the idea of Lex Talionis is um, more to do, uh, I would argue, with uh, limiting your retaliation than strictly retaliation. So if you ask nine out of ten, maybe nine and a half out of ten people, um, what eye for eye means. It means you punch me, I punch you. Okay? But in reality, it means you punch me the most I can do is punch you. Mm -hmm. So it's a limiting. It's meant to prevent people from uh, dying unnecessarily or receiving uh, more harm back to them than what they did to you. So in reality, we look at it as brutality when it's quite likely that it was actually about mercy and grace. Two totally different things. So if you look at, if you change your perspective on that, and you read Old Testament law, well, now you view it totally differently. You ask a person off the street or somebody has a little bit of familiarity with Old Testament law, and they're going to think it's very barbaric, right? It's, it's very much like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, etc. So I think there's a big misunderstanding about that. Um, <coughs> Much of our civil law today has, uh, has roots, both um, in, in biblical aspects, but also in Babylonian order. Just to, just to interrupt, when you're saying that, that what they did was just to give you back what you gave out, is that what you're saying? I'm saying that's the most you can give. So it's kind of so, like... So if I punched up your eye, like um, Martin Floyd had his eye picked out, um, if this cop was shown to be... Evil, such as Ford, uh -huh. they would kick out the cop's eye. Well, that's the most they can do. They don't have to do that. That's the most they can do. They and, can, and they they can they find him. They couldn't send him to jail or anything like that. Well, no, they, I mean, they wouldn't bother with that part of that case. Although you could, I mean, you could, if, if you could equate a jail sentence with that, whatever the equation would be. Okay. So, I mean, I, I guess what you eventually end up doing is. Um, you have some evidence of this in the Bible, and we do it in our culture. You put, you end up putting a monetary value on your eye, oh. if you can do such a thing, right? <laughs> so you could also assign a fine, it's equivalent to the monetary value, or you could assign a, a sentence, I suppose, in jail that's equivalent to what you think that is valued at. Those are all ways of going around and not doing the exact thing. Well, was the victim allowed to be a part of that decision-making process back in those days? Yeah, no, they'd be the primary uh, witness. So you could say, listen, give me a thousand dollars for my eye, and you can keep yours. He could do that. 
Is that what you're saying? Sure. And probably I could either give you the thousand bucks or we could go to court. Okay. So if I just want to give you the thousand and you're happy with that, then we're fine. So do you want to do your Now you come back next week and say the same thing, so now, and then we have another problem, right? So, exactly. Okay. So again, it's the idea of, of putting a limit. Okay, so you can't come back and kill me for it, right? Because you weren't killed, you just lost your eye, right? So it's a matter of limiting uh, what takes place. Okay. So Hammurabi, as we mentioned, uh, predated Moses and established legal practice in many political, social, economic, and religious institutions. So uh, very famous. Um, I was first introduced to that uh, probably by criminal justice studies. Um, not only that, a lot of technological achievements. Uh, math, geometry, and algebra developed a numerical system, measurement of time and degrees of angles, and um, then astronomy and astrology. So astronomy is study of the, the planets, the solar system. Um, astrology um, is related to that, but astrology is the one where you, then you start ending up moving towards the, the psychic stuff, right? And reading your livers and or etc. So <coughs> sometimes uh, we get confused about those two. Like, there's nothing wrong with studying God's solar system. You know, it's in there. Other achievements: the calendar system of 12 lunar months, measurement water or the sun clock, medicine, surgery, anatomy, physiology. Circulation of blood, the pulse. So you can see, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff going on in Babylon. It's not all bad. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff taking place in Babylon. Economy and social structure is the, the next one. Um, economic base was barley. Also wheat, fruit, vegetables, cattle, and sheep. Irrigation systems, the swamp and the desert conditions um, kind of necessitated. Remember we talked in the past about Mesopotamia versus Egypt. Egypt <coughs> has a Nile River. It floods every year. It's very fertile. It's reliable. In Mesopotamia, not so reliable. And when it floods, it wipes stuff out. So they had um, irrigation systems, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and then canal systems um, to help bring that irrigation. So if you could uh, divert, you know, some of the Euphrates and Tigris, create a canal, and that would give you some additional um, irrigation. Are you familiar with the other two rivers that are mentioned in Genesis that are also mentioned with those two? The Kishon and the... Uh, yeah, well, where are those rivers? Yeah, well, I, I never hear them being talked about ever. Uh, well, I mean, it's in the commentaries that deal with those passages. Okay. Uh, but they're debated. I mean, we, we talk about Euphrates and Tigris for a couple of reasons. I mean, they're still there, and they're, uh, they're known. So the others are, are hard to pinpoint. They were thought for a long time then they got some satellite imagery and they say, you know, this might be an old dried up riverbed that was, etc. So there's debate about it. Okay. You know, so a lot of debate about it, you know. So I'm not exactly sure where they're at. The economic and social structure of Babylon. Art, um, tapestries and rugs, fashion, gold and silver goods. They cut gems and manufactured textiles. Uh, the trade was key to Babylon's wealth. Uh, protection from bandits. And uh, th this prosperity went till 1000 BC. And of course, you tax the people. Who doesn't, right? 
If you have an empire, what's one of the ways you get money? Well, you tax the people, right? Solomon did the same thing, right? So that's a lot of the economic, religious, technological, etc. aspects related to Babylon and their empire, all right? So what about Israel and Babylon as, as they come together and as they um, have to, for the, for the Israelites, have to learn to <coughs> live in this environment? So uh, before the exile, up to 605, exile period is 605 to 538. Why 605? Okay, that's when the first major group is exiled. Okay. 538, why 538? That's when uh, Cyrus takes over Babylon, right? So Babylon is no longer the empire, but uh, Cyrus is, and what does Cyrus say? Cyrus says, you can go home. Did they all go home? No, they didn't all go home, okay? They'd been there 70 plus years, and they had established businesses or whatever else. Um, but by the time Cyrus comes on, on the scene, there's an awful lot of people. I mean, they've never been in Jerusalem. They were born and raised over there, right? So Jerusalem, you know, they'd heard about it, but anyway. So, let's talk for a few moments about the exile, um, why it happened, a couple of uh, scriptures related to it, so that we can um, understand. Remember, 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken over by the Assyrian Empire. Um, we say that enough, uh, so you should hopefully know it, right? <laughs> um, so, Israel, Israel here, Judah here, all right? We got a couple... Uh, notations here, Elijah and Amos and, and Hosea here, and then you can see we're, we're dividing this area here into before the exile, the exile, and after the exile, which is the same information that was on the previous slide. So, in Micah 1.5, it says, For the transgression of Jacob is all of this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So before the exile, the time period of Micah, the, the prophet, comes in right around here, and God is sending word to his people. Listen, you got paganism, okay? you got idolatry, okay? you're, you're going astray, you, you are not being loyal to the covenant. But he doesn't just send one prophet, all right? He sends numerous. Isaiah comes in. Like his contemporaries, he envisaged the social uh, inequities of his day as symptoms of an underlying spiritual problem which is only going to be cured by exile. So Isaiah comes in, and, and he also warns the people. But alas, they don't listen. Zephaniah 1, 4-6, I will stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, and the name of the Kimarim with the priests, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship that swear to Jehovah Yahweh and swear by Malcolm, and them that are turned back from following Jehovah, Yahweh, and those that have not sought Yahweh nor inquired after him. So Zephaniah, again, speaking God's words that what he is going to do because of their idolatry. Jeremiah 2.8. The priest said not, where is Yahweh, Jehovah? They, hand, they that handle the law knew me not. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So, in Jeremiah 2.8, <clears throat> look at the groups of people that are, are mentioned there. 
priests, the rulers, the prophets. So all of these people, what, what do they have in common? Yeah, whole leadership is corrupt. And God says, because you're corrupt, this is what's going to happen. As goes the leader, so goes us people, right? I mean, people follow. Sheep follow, right? And so that's why you also see the imagery of a shepherd in, in the prophets. Uh, you need a new shepherd because you shepherds are thieves. You steal from the sheep. You beat the sheep. You don't take care of the sheep. You let the wolves get into the sheep pen. And so God is saying, listen, this can't continue to go on. All right? And, of course, he's going to come. He will be, you know, the great shepherd. You know, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the shepherd, right? Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 17. He says, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit? For they have filled the land with violence and have turned again to provoke me to anger. Lo, they put the branch to their nose. The idolatry is so great that if you look at the book of Ezekiel, you will see that there are images and that uh, what begins to happen is that if this is the the temple, the, the tabernacle area, and that God's holy presence dwells here, that there's this movement. As God moves out of there and goes into exile, that, that God will not be with his people who are in corruption and in sin. And so Ezekiel is, is talking about that. You can see we're moving closer and closer to the exile. The prophets have had the same message. Some are general, some are more specific, but it's all pretty much the same message. Repent. So eventually, they're taken, and, and they're taken into uh, exile, into Judah. <coughs> so Ezra 5 says, But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven under, under, unto wrath, and he gave him into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. And so God has sent them off uh, because of their idolatry, because of their uh, perversion into Babylon. <coughs> and so Babylon has expanded, okay, all through here. And now Judah is exiled out. The people are, are taken into exile. I mentioned earlier that of the of the six different deportations that there's basically three uh, major ones, and those are the ones that you should be familiar with: 605, 597, and 586. But there were some other ones in between there, as the the people rebelled. Remember, if you don't pay your tribute money, right? Your tax money, your protection money, okay? Um, kind of like mafia money, right? Pay the mafia, and they keep your place of business protected, right? You don't pay the mafia, and what happens to your stores? Okay, exactly. Well, it's the same thing here, right? So you don't pay your tribute. Well, the thugs are coming back, all right? And that's what happens, all right? And so that's why you have multiple. So you can see here some of the key captives and who was the king. So in 605, we've already mentioned that Daniel and his friends, okay, they're the focus of, of that, and they tie in, obviously, with the book of Daniel. Um, in 598, 3,000 people were taken. Then you got 10,000 here, 832 here, and 10,500 here, 745 there. So you, you can see that there's, there's several times. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar stays active in the area. 
as I've mentioned before, if you want to maintain your grip on the area, you're going to have to have people in place and, and soldiers in place and, and you know garrisons here and there and there so that you can uh, maintain control of that. The total number of groups taken into custody may best be indicated by the number of those who return with 537. So, so far, 42,000. Page 162. Uh, 52 or 62? Page 152. 62. Second to last paragraph, the last line. <coughs> So the three major uh, deportations are, are what you, you want to pick up on that, okay? All right, so um, the captives in, in exile. <coughs> and if you look at the different passages of Scripture here, you've got Daniel, 2 Kings, and 2 Kings again. The king spoke to Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring in certain of the children of Israel, even of the seed uh, royal, the royal seed and of the nobles, okay? So... One of the things that you recognize or realize that happens is um, they did take lots of people, but one of the first groups of people that they would take with them was the upper echelon of society, people who were already in nobility or being trained for it. So Daniel and his friends were probably not just commoners in, in, uh, in Judah. Okay, they, they were already in um, some level of, of upper echelons of society, and they're taken. 2 Kings 24, 14, he carried away all of Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained save the poorest sort of the people of land. So in Daniel, we're talking around 605, in 2 Kings around 597, and then in 2 Kings 25, around 586. So these are the three major deportations that we see at the bottom, but the captain, the guard left, all, left of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. So who is mainly being left in the land? The poorest. Etc. <coughs> so, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans, only deported the most prominent citizens of Judah professionals, priests, craftsmen, 
the wealthy, etc. Okay? They're also the influencers, right? Generally speaking. All right? They're also the, the ones that make the important decisions. The preservation of Judah's national heritage, okay? The Babylonian exile helped Judah preserve its national heritage. Um, the Babylonian policy of deportation required conquered countries to follow their pagan cult. In contrast to the ten northern tribes that merged into the Assyrian society, the Judean Jews in exile successfully resisted this. It says, but the Jews in Babylon also creatively remade themselves in their worldview. In particular, they blamed the disaster of the exile on their own impurity. Along with the theology of judgment, the prophets also had emphasized a theology of salvation. Ezekiel and Isaiah both noted that the Israelites would be gathered together once more, their society and religion purified, and the unified Davidic kingdom would be reestablished. So you have in the prophets this aspect of sin, punishment and judgment, and then restoration. So after the judgment comes, there's hope. Okay, there's this new hope that God is going to bring about and he's going to bring to his people. And so if you're an Israelite in exile, that's what you got to be focused on. And so they were told, Jeremiah said this, he said, listen, you're going to be 70 years in captivity. Okay, so get used to it. Okay, hunker down, not, not in a bunker, but, you know, put your roots in. All right. And actually, he says, pray for the prosperity of the city. Excuse me? Yeah, of Babylon. Okay, so do well in Babylon. Have success. So the elimination of idolatry, the people repented from sin, 
and finally uh, learn the lesson that God abhors idols, and that idolatry had caused the devastation of Jerusalem. So this period has a resurgence in Jewish tradition instead of idolatry, as they look back to their Mosaic origins to revive their original religion. And during this time period, the Torah took its final shape and uh, became the central text for Jewish faith. And so the Old Testament is, uh, is uh, finished up, sewn together, if you will, etc. And Daniel 1, 3 to 4 says, The king spoke to Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring in certain of the children of Israel, even of the seed royal, or the nobles. We spoke about this a minute ago. So these prisoners joined other people previously enslaved to supplement the vast labor force employed in the gigantic task of reconstruction and expansion work recurrent in the empire. So life in Babylon motivated prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel to minister in exile. They anticipated and prayed for the restoration of Jerusalem. Previously, Jeremiah had limited the time to 70 years. These prophets provided um, a, a way for Israel to, uh, to live and to look forward to a hope. Um, in the book of Daniel, he mentions Jeremiah's 70 years. Well, Daniel's in Babylon. And as he's in Babylon, he's reflecting on, and he obviously has access to Jeremiah's prophecies. So, 70 years. Oh, are we about there yet? And so, yes, he's, he's looking at you know, this time frame and looking for a hope and trusting you know, what God has said. So, this had a positive effect to prepare the people intellectually and spiritually for a new beginning in Palestine. <coughs> what are some of the negatives? Well, exposure to gross idolatry and immorality that took place that all the time in Babylon. That's the first half of what we talked about today, right? All this, this pagan culture that's going on. The materialism, okay? Um, we're a materialistic people. But did you catch the, the, the materialism involved in what Nebuchadnezzar built? Um, it was massive. And so both of these ideas um, are things that had to be battled. Not everybody went back to Jerusalem when permission was granted. Why? Because they lived in the glitz and the glamour of Babylon. Um, this was a, a magnificent place. So that is some of the uh, the negative aspects that that played into this as well. So the uh, the hanging gardens, of course, that we've already referred to, are examples of this. The city itself, okay, is an example of this. Hey, don't we get comfortable? I mean, we're, we're pretty wealthy as Americans, even if you think you're poor. Okay, we're still pretty wealthy. Um, hot water, hot food. Refrigerator, freezer, yes, right. maybe more than one refrigerator and freezer, right? So, um, yes, sir. how many houses have only one TV? Not most, right? Um, we're we're quite privileged. Um, the majority of the rest of the world still doesn't live like that. The majority of the rest of the world lives closer to Babylon than what most of us do. And so, you know, there's a sense where
bells and whistles, if you will. We got these great kids programs and youth programs, and then you got these, you know, these big adult ensembles, and heck, you got, you know, at Christmas and Easter and whatnot, you got orchestras and plays and all this. Um, yeah, you, what, you want me to come help you start a new church, and we don't get, we don't have any of that? No, well, you don't have any of that. That's right, because it's not about you, okay? But yet, that's a real battle in our culture, right? Because you do. You have to give up all that and go start something new. Well, let me know when you get it started. Yeah, and then you're going to get started if you don't help me, you know? So it's the same thing, I think, that is, is part of the struggle that we have as Christians. It just shows itself in different ways. In 458 B.C., more Jews returned under the leadership of Ezra. And then 12 years later, Nehemiah returned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and govern Judea. He arrived in 444 B.C. Despite much opposition, they completed the task in 52 days. And then a revival followed, and Ezra and Nehemiah canonized the books of the Old Testament. They read aloud to the people and gave it its interpretation. And about 40 years later, the prophet Malachi condemned the people for slipping back into their sinful ways. So, the cycle continues. It doesn't end. It continues. <clears throat> Some points to remember. I think this is... Um, I didn't make these up, but uh, acronym of Babylon, Babylonia, that refers to the geography when you say it that way, Babylonia, right? Um, Akkadian, that was the language. Babel is the religion. Years of captivity, 70. Lots of trade. Only 73 or so years long. Okay, you can round it to 75. Of that, who was the king in charge for most of it? Nebuchadnezzar. And remember, when we say it was only that long, we're talking of the, quote, Neo-Babylonian time period, right? And then Nebuchadnezzar is your end. Um, so, and then in parentheses, you can see you got these different aspects of geography, language, religion, spirit, economic, history, and military. So, um, if that helps you rem remember some of these aspects, then that's good. Uh, Babylon's materialism, cult, trust in riches, glory and wealth, self-determination, consumerism, worship of self, pride and greed. Um, there's an awful lot we could talk about. We don't have time, so I won't even open the can. But uh, there's an awful lot we could talk about related to our democracy and capitalism and how you know we may not be that far different from what operates there. Uh, Christians are just as prone to it. We're just as prone to... Um, ultra-patriotism and ultra-capitalism and ultra-democracy, uh, none of which is kingdom of God. It's all kingdoms of this world. So we really need to be careful, and we really need to uh, saturate ourselves in the scripture so that we can be uh, good stewards and so we can be wise in how we, we live in the, the blessed country that God has put us. Acts 17 says that God has determined the places that we live. I don't know why we're why was I born here instead of in India or Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else? Saudi Arabia is a Muslim Imam. Right? <laughs> why? Allah is God. So, remember, if God is in the business of humbling people, Wow. okay? Belshazzar was humbled. Okay? Taken that night. Alright? Nebuchadnezzar, he did not learn from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was humble. Okay. You and I have got to learn that, that we have
have got to be humbled. Or Philippians, we will be humbled, right? So, um, Babylon fell, and so will everybody else. That must have been scary. When Babylon fell? No, the previous scribes. Oh, for him? Uh, if I recall correctly, don't quote me on this, but I think if you actually actually check the text, it's more like his knees are knocking, and it's more like he had to change his pants. Ooh. So, yeah. So, to answer your question, yeah, he was probably scared. <laughs> um, so, Babylon falls. Babylon doesn't live. No earthly empire will last. Okay? No earthly anything will last. I was talking the other day with somebody, I don't remember why or what, um, Oh, San Francisco City. I was subbing at CSBA the other day. Um, uh, world market empires won't last either. Um, Walmart will not always be the the you know the global monster that it is. You know, Amazon, etc. I mean, you, all you gotta do is go back seventy five years and see who it was. It was somebody else. Woolworths. Ever heard of them? I mean, Woolworths. I say that to the, the students. They've never heard of them. I mean, <laughs> what do teenagers know about Woolworths? So. <coughs> um, with, with, the, with the economy the way it is and with technology the way it is and the global connectedness, it allows for even larger monstrosities and monopolies, if you will. But um, at the end of the day, at the end of the time, someone else will take it over. I mean, it's no different than the kingdoms of, of the world, you know? And that's what happened. So um, what happened? Babylon, Persia happened. Um, they diverted the river in the middle of their party, and they marched right through the riverbed after diverting the water. Now, I don't know how long it took people to realize the, the water was drying up, but anyways, they were in the middle of their festivities, and here, here they come. I mean, that's the Trojan horse, correct? So uh, I guess where, where there's a will, there's a way. And, of course, you know, theologically, I would say, you know, God was behind all of this, right? And it was time for Persia to come, which God had already named Cyrus of Persia. In the prophecies of Isaiah. Yes, he did. So, Babylon's fall, uh, just quickly, I think I have two or three slides. From uh, the history of uh, the Persian Wars, Herodotus, Cyrus placed a portion of his army at the point where the river enters the city and another body at the back of the place where it issues forth with orders to march into the town by the bed of the stream as soon as the water became shallow enough. He then himself drew off with the unwarlike portion of his host and made for the place where Nicocris dug the basin for the river, where he did exactly what she had done formerly. He turned the Euphrates by a canal into the basin, which was then a marsh on which the river sank to such an extent that the natural bed of the stream became fordable. Hereupon the Persians, who had been left for the purpose at Babylon by the riverside, entered the stream, which had now sunk so as to reach about midway up a man's thigh, and thus they got into the town." Had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about or had they noticed their danger, they would never have allowed the Persians to enter the city, but would have destroyed them utterly. For they would have made fast all the steel gates which gave upon the river, and mounting upon the walls along both sides of the stream, would so have caught the enemy as it were in a trap. But as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise and so took the city. Owing to the vast size of the palace, or place, I mean, the inhabitants of the central parts, long after the outer portion of the town were taken, knew nothing of what had changed. But as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learnt the capture. But too late. Gone. <laughs> Such were the circumstances of the first taking of Babylon. So. Wow. Um, they knew it was 
learn? What do we learn? Idols are useless. Affluence and materialism don't last. Avoid the influence of Babylon that exists today. Avoid the Babylons of the future. And giving people a chance to fail is sometimes the best way to see them succeed. Although I would not use that as a concrete, always, you know, platform. Babylon, of course, comes up in Revelation. Babylon throughout Scripture pictures the worldly kingdoms of God in contrast to the uh, heavenly kingdoms of God. So, when when you're thrust into the kingdoms of the world, and you have to decide how you're going to uh, interact, live with, etc., those kingdoms of, of the world, you know, my challenge is, I don't like to moralize the book of Daniel. I don't think Daniel was written uh, to be moralized and, and just made into um, these ethical platitudes. Uh, but I do think that if you look at Daniel, he was a man of conviction. He was a man who was able to serve, okay? I want you to think about the presidents, okay? I, I don't know or care really which one you like or don't like, but um, I'll just use both, okay? Obama and Trump, all right? Yeah. So uh, whichever one you like least, Imagine that you are serving in his cabinet. That was Daniel. Okay? So you you don't like them. You don't like their policies. You don't like their practices. You don't like the direction that they're they're heading with things. And yet, you are on the cabinet. Wow. And Daniel served him. Okay? This is the guy that came in and burned down his city. He burned down his God's temple. And... He somehow is able to serve him in faithfulness, okay, and hold to his faith. If you work with, this is for us, but also if if you work with young people at all, this is the challenge we have before us. To get them, because they are inundated with the world, okay? So the kids we work with, um, I mean, they're in the public schools, they're in broken families, they have uh, parents that have had, you know, two, three, four kids from two, three, four different people who may or may not be married now, who may have never been married, and then you're trying to talk to them about uh, choosing Christ instead of cool, or instead of the culture, or what sexual um, purity and holiness looks like. Like, you're like the only one telling them. And I'll just say this, some of our churches, whatever they're saying out of their mouth, they're saying something else with their body. And so... That's the message that they're getting. And we come along as like the lone voice. And literally, they look at you like you're crazy. Um, and so, you know, that's what Jeremiah faced up close. But we got to be people of, of conviction, of inner conviction, like Daniel was, able to serve in a pagan culture, um, even to the place to prosper. You know, I, I hope that you desire, you know, I want Orlando to prosper. You know, I don't want us to be going to Mickey Mouse all the time, but, you know, I want us to prosper. I want Orlando to be a great place. I want, uh, I mean, why would we want it to be a horrible place, right? I mean, we live here. So, but, we want it to be a place that honors God. We want it to be a place that is uh, known more for that. I have a friend who always says, you know, his goal is that one day Orlando will be known more for Jesus than, you know, Mickey Mouse. So, uh, that's up to us. Isn't that why God put us here? Isn't that why God put Israel where they were? Isn't this supposed to be a light to the nations? 
Well, you're not a very good light for nations, so you know what? I'm just going to stick you in the nations. Okay? You're not doing it over here, so guess what? I'll throw some of you in Egypt, I'll throw some of you in Babylon, and we're, we're going to get my name all over the place. And you know, he does it one way or another. So that's the challenge that uh, I see as, as we look at this, and the challenge that uh, I have to deal with and face, just like you do, uh, in all of our life you know, frustrations and, and everything else. That's what I have for today.